following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Okay, good morning. Oh, it is a skeleton crew this morning. Wow. But we're glad you're here, even if we don't know where everybody else is. God knows where they are. And we will pray for them. Maybe it's a good thing that there aren't a lot of people here this morning because uh, this is one of the more challenging uh, passages in the Bible. And uh, this promise is one of two things. This is um, uh, a preacher's nightmare, actually. If, those goes, if this goes well, it'll be spectacular. If it goes poorly, you'll just see me spiraling down in flames. Either way, it's going to prove to be a good show. So that's so you're going to be glad you're here. And they're going to be sad they missed this. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, um, starting in verse 11, uh, through uh, Hebrews 6, verse 20. Hebrews 5.11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have wasted the goodness of the word of God, and have tasted, sorry, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Um, 
if you're uh, any kind of student of the word, you, you'll recognize some of the problems and pitfalls in this passage. Um, as I said, uh, it's, it's known for being probably the most challenging passage in, in Hebrews. Some would claim it's the most difficult passage in the whole New Testament. Uh, and here's the main difficulty, just to sum it up. He's writing uh, his sermon, the book of Hebrews, as we said, is a sermon. And he's writing this sermon clearly to, to believers, uh, to the church, to people who know God. Uh, and he's uh, deeply concerned about them, not because they are not saved, but rather because they are drifting into immaturity. They're not growing and progressing into the maturity that, that should be theirs given the amount of time that they've been believers and have been walking with God. Uh, and and his, his fear is that this lack of maturity puts them at a great risk of falling away. Uh, and the language, as you've seen, the language he uses here is very strong. Uh, he says, uh, and the, the crux of it all, he says, It is impossible for those who have tasted the goodness of God's word and salvation uh, and then fallen away to be restored again to repentance. And those are hard words. And it would appear, it seems that he's saying that there is a danger here for believers that they could lose their salvation. That our salvation is not guaranteed or certain. And that it is possible for a believer to so turn their back on God that they could lose eternal life. Um, And um, that that kind of turning away, the, the, the great theological word for that is apostasy. Uh, turning away from God, rejecting the faith with the result that, that you lose your salvation. Um, so that's why this passage causes so many problems for interpreters and theologians and, and preachers. <laughs> right? Uh, the question is, can a genuine believer really turn so far away from God that they could lose their salvation? Is that possible, as it seems to teach here? Uh, of course, how you answer that depends a lot on where you come from theologically. And, of course, there are some people who say, well, of course you can lose your salvation. And this they would use as proof, right? They would turn to this passage and say, yeah, it's exactly what it's teaching, that if you're not careful, you don't keep your act together, you could lose your salvation and forfeit eternal life. Uh, there are people on another end of the scale who would say, it is impossible to lose your salvation, right? No matter what, and that's because it's ultimately a work of God, and God's work cannot fail. Right? If it was up to us, it, it could fail, but it's not up to us. It's ultimately something that God does. And so, um, so they, would, they would interpret this passage differently, uh, that uh, they're, they're losing some kind of salvation, but probably they weren't really saved in the first place. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about, more about some of those views. Um, uh, but, but basically they would have two answers to it. One, they were never really saved in the first place. That what this is about is people who um, look like Christians, they act like Christians, maybe they go to church or they experience some of uh, the outward signs of Christianity, but they really were never saved in the first place and they're falling away as proof that they weren't really believers. Um, or there's another version of this that says, well, actually what the author is doing here is he's just threatening people with a really serious threat that's not actually possible. So in other words, he's saying, well, if you, if you could turn away from Jesus, it would result in uh, loss of your salvation, but whew, thankfully that's not possible. 
So it's a potential risk, but in reality, it's impossible. Um, so um, all of these views, I think, have significant problems in that they fail to explain what the passage really says. And they don't account for what's taught here. And here's a couple of things that we know, and we'll unpack this further. But two things we know from this passage or from the Bible as a whole. The first is that he's clearly writing to genuine believers. He's not writing here to people who just think they're Christians. The language he uses is describing people who are true followers of Christ, who really have tasted fully what it means to be saved. Uh, secondly, from not this passage, but from Hebrews and from the scripture as a whole, I would argue that losing your salvation by rejecting God is not possible. And I don't think if, if, if you're saved, you, you, you can't undo that because it's something God does. John 10.10 10 says, uh, those who come to me, my father holds them in his hand. Right? And we can't escape that even if we want to. Uh, so then how do we explain this passage? How do we resolve this dilemma that he's writing to believers, but he seems to be saying that they can lose their salvation. Um, uh, it seems like uh, it's contradictory to the rest of Scripture. So my hope is today that we'll resolve that dilemma. Uh, but before we do that, we really need to look and understand uh, the, the message or the point he's making here in this passage. Uh, he did not write this just to stir up controversy, even though if he had any idea what, you know, what, how this would unravel people, maybe he would have been a little more clear. Um, but he was actually writing for another purpose, right? And so it's important to see the big picture of what's going on here. So let's back up a little bit, and, and we're going to survey through this, uh, hopefully quickly, and then go back and address some of these problems and see if we can find an answer. Um, first off... Um, it's important to see that this, uh, this is part of the second big point of his sermon. Remember I said the book of Hebrews is a sermon. The first four chapters is kind of point one. Chapters uh, 5, 1 through chapter 10, verse 18 is point two, his big outline. And uh, the main theme or topic of this second section is, is the great high priesthood of Jesus. And that's why this whole series, we're calling it the great high priest of Jesus, because that's what he's going to be talking about all the way up through chapter 10. Um, and, and so chapter uh, f- uh, f- 5, verse 9, the passage right before this, he says, um, he, he has this explanation of Jesus, that Jesus being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what he wants to do, what he's getting ready to do, is explain to us what this, what this means, that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, this is a bit of a problem for us as Christians because we don't really identify naturally with the idea of a high priest, much less a great high priest. But he wants to take us deeper into an understanding of this, and it's huge for us as believers. What, uh, what, he, what we're going to learn about as we go forward is some extraordinary things that Jesus has accomplished for us uh, through, through his death on the cross. Um, so that's his plan. But, but all of a sudden in, 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 in this verse, verse 10, he takes a bit of a rabbit trail. He puts on the brakes, slams to a stop and says, but wait a minute, before we proceed further, I need to warn you about something. 
and so he launches into what is the third of five warning passages in Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrew literature, uh, the center of something is always the most important. And so this is three of five, puts it right dead in the middle, two before, two after. So this makes this not only the central, but really the most important warning passage. And much of his whole argument, his whole sermon, is built around um, this central section. Um, And his warning begins this way. He says, before we go further, uh, he says, about this we, we have much to say. That is, about the high priesthood of Christ, of Jesus. We have a lot to say, a lot to teach you. But it's hard to explain, not because the content is difficult, but because you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers Though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Um, So he, he wants to tell them so much more, but he's worried that their lack of maturity will uh, keep them from grasping what he's about to teach them. So this is hard to explain. This is difficult stuff. And it's not difficult for mature people, but for the immature, it's going to go right over your head. Right? You're not going to get what I'm talking about. Uh, and he says that this, um, this immaturity is a concern for him. And the reason is not because they are new believers. Right? Uh, he says that they, they have attained... Uh, they have attained a level of maturity, but they're, they're regressing backward from it. Again, why it's clear they're believers, right? He's not assuming that they're not Christians who can't understand something. He said, no, you've been Christians. You know this stuff. You are at a point, you've been a Christian long enough. You should be teaching others, right? You, you should have, and, and in the past, perhaps, you have progressed in maturity to a place where you were proclaiming these truths to other people. You reached a level of maturity, But since then, you have slipped from that place, and you are sliding backwards into immaturity. uh, And the cause is is because you are dull of hearing. Um, This word, dull of hearing, is is an important word, and it's used here, and it's also used in verse 20 at the end of this passage. And there it's translated sluggish. Uh, The word can be translated either way. If you put those two together... Uh, I would translate it, you are lazy listeners. You are lazy listeners. Um, And they haven't always been this way. In the past, it appears they were diligent and eager to hear God's word and serious about what they learned, seeking to follow it and put it into practice. But now they become lazy. They are not serious about God's word. They're making very little effort to apply its truth. Um, They are not living it out. There's a lot of speculation about why they became lazy. And most agree that this was a church that was being persecuted. These are mostly Jews. Uh, Some speculated that they were actually priests, part of the priestly order who had uh, come to Jesus and had turned away from Judaism. And they were taking a lot of heat for this, a lot of criticism, maybe even imprisonment and beating, perhaps even uh, death, right? And so uh, it's not that they were by nature lazy people, 
But as the persecution increased, as things got harder, as the challenges of the Christian life and the walk of faith squeezed in on them, they started to get uh, tired, stressed, weary, worn out. And instead of fighting the good fight of faith and persisting in their faith, they were starting to get tired, worn out. And, and the result of that was they got lazy and lax in faith. Uh, they were developing a, a, a lazy attitude towards Scripture. Right? They weren't giving up on its truth. They just weren't attentive to it. Right? They weren't serious about it anymore. And, of course, we can appreciate um, what that must look like for them. Uh, and so he says, you've become, you've become, instead of mature, you are now immature. And he, he gives three marks of, of, of this immaturity. Uh, he says, for by this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you again. Uh, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature. Uh, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Three marks. He says, first, a mature person is able to teach others. And it implies that they actually are teaching others. He says, you're, you're not doing that. Right? You, you instead need to be taught because you're not developing your understanding of the word. Secondly, a mature person can take in solid food. And the idea is here they can grasp and understand the deeper truths of Scripture. Uh, the gospel is, in many ways, extremely simple and clear. Right? It is something a, a babe in Christ can understand. But it is also extremely deep. Right? And we will never get to the bottom of the truths of the gospel. But they're not even trying, right? Uh, because they can't grasp these things. It's solid food and they can't chew on it, right? They have no teeth. And they can't contemplate the deeper things of Scripture, and specifically of the Gospel. And finally, he says that, that uh, mature people are spiritually trained to know what is good and evil. The idea here is this word constant practice. People who through constant practice know good from evil. The word there is, is gymnazo, the word we get gym from, gymnasium. That's a person who's, who's working out their muscles of faith, right? who's learning to distinguish God's will, what is right and what is wrong, by exercising that ability. Right? They're trying to figure out God's will. They're trying to know the right thing to do in every single, single circumstance. But you know that's hard when the circumstances you're in mean standing up for your faith, taking a bold stance when it means people are going to throw things at you or throw you in jail or kill you. Right? And I don't want to hear that. Right? So we back off from those things. We're not practicing. They weren't, they weren't exercising through practice what it meant to follow God and do his will. So, so here's the thing. He wants to tell them of greater and deeper truths about Jesus what Jesus is for them and, and what he wants to do for them, how he is their great high priest. Uh, but they are, are beginning to wilt under the pressure of persecution and, and the challenges and difficulties of the Christian life. And as they get worn out in this battle, they have become lazy listeners who, know, or who are no longer moving forward into maturity but are actually sliding backward into immaturity. Uh, they are not teaching others. They cannot grasp the deeper truths of God's word. And they are not practicing faith and exercising their spiritual muscles of obedience. And we need to stop right here and take a quick intermission 
and ask ourselves, how are we doing in our spiritual journey? Uh, The Christian life is not always easy. And while we may not be facing the same kind of persecution they were, the honest truth is if you are out there living a life of faith, it is going to be hard. It is going to be a battle. And the, the potential is there that we can get tired and worn out in our walk with God. Right? It can be a drain sometimes if we're not anchored in the right place and if we're not diligent to be moving forward. And the risk for all of, of, of us is that we can become a lazy listener. Right? And it doesn't mean that we no longer understand God's word, but we can stop being attentive to its commands and demands. It's not a problem of knowledge. We can know lots about the Bible. The real question is, are you putting it into practice? Are you serious about following all that it says? Are you diligently practicing and exercising the powers of discernment to know God's will and to faithfully walk in everything that you know God's calling you to do? Maybe you feel that there's nothing new in the Bible. Have you ever got to this point where you've heard the story of Jesus and the cross and you know, forgiveness of sins so many times and you feel like it just doesn't move you anymore. Well, as he will tell us in a minute, it's because you're stuck on the ABCs and you are not chewing on solid food. You're bored because your understanding is limited to milk. Right? And you become spiritually lazy. Um, so he challenges us in six Chapter 6, verse 20 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He says we need to move past these basics and get into the deeper things to to move forward into maturity. And he says I'm not going to do that by rehashing all that again. You know that. The problem is not knowledge, and the problem is not time. He says, I'm, what, what we don't need to do is take a lot of time for you to catch up. He says, the issue here is a decision and fresh commitment to stop being lazy listeners. We don't have to go over this again because you know it. What we need is to commit ourselves to be earnest in hearing God's word and be attentive to it. So he says he's not going to go over again the ABCs of salvation. Um, repentance, faith, baptism. Um, resurrection, judgment. Right? Now by this he does not mean, it would be easy to think here, that what he's saying is that, that the cross is the elementary principle and that if we want to grow in maturity as a believer, we leave behind the cross and we move into bigger issues, more important things. That is not what he's teaching at all. And in fact, as we go forward, we will see that what he unpacks in the rest of this section of Jesus as our high priest, is absolutely rooted in the blood of Jesus and in the cross. One of of the problems that we run into is that people get bored in their Christian life and they get lazy in their listening to God's word. And they think the answers to their life's problems lie somewhere beyond the cross. So that's why in our modern world there are gazillions of self-help books out there that are rooted in anything but the gospel, anything but the cross. Because we think that somehow I'm going to find answers to my life beyond Jesus and the cross. That is not what he's talking about here. 
the wonderful promises and blessings that he wants to probe deeper into, that he wants to drill down deeply into, are absolutely centered in the cross of Christ. It is always and only the cross. But pressing on into maturity means pressing deeper into all that the power and the blessing of the cross means. What he wants to tell us is that there are blessings, there are promises that God has for you as a believer that you are missing out on if you only see Jesus as an entrance into the path of salvation. And you do not see how the cross can impact and bless you every single day of your life all through this world and into eternity. So he says, I want to do that. Let's press on into maturity. But then in verse 3, he throws in a super zinger. It's a short verse that most people just skip right over because it's so short and it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to most people. He says this. He says, and this we will do if God permits. Okay, we're going to jump into this pressing forward into maturity. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the cross. But only if God gives us permission. Um, so what does he mean by this? Right? What, what exactly might God not allow? Well, exactly this. Uh, God may not permit them to understand the deeper teachings of all they have in Jesus as high priest. Now that seems kind of weird, right? Why would God not give permission for that? If that's the way to maturity, if that's how we get a deeper life with him, if that's how we uh, come to obtain all of his blessings and promises that are available in Jesus, why would God not permit us to go down that path? Well, this verse really is one of the keys in understanding this passage. Um, and, and, and it's important to understand what he is saying here. Uh, he is saying that God may not allow this. Um, he may not give them permission. Um, and he explains exactly why in the next three verses. Okay, so now you want to know what these verses say, right? Why would God not want them to grow deeper into the knowledge of the things of Jesus? Well, he says right here in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's a really long sentence, and it's a broken sentence, and uh, a bit confusing. But this is exactly what he's saying. He's saying, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who are believers but have fallen away. Let me say that again. He's saying, it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who are believers who have tasted the word of God and have fallen away. That's why God may not permit them to grasp what he's about to say. Right? Because they are at risk of coming to a place where they have so damaged something, they've so lost something, that God is not going to give them the permission to progress into maturity. So, so his argument goes something like this. You become lazy listeners, spiritually lethargic, and indifferent to God's word. Or at least they're at risk of that. Um, you were, and, and because of that, you are in danger of falling away from God. 
And if you cross that line, it is impossible for you to be restored, to repent and be brought back to a place where you can move forward in your walk with God to maturity. That's his argument. That's what he's outlining so far. But he's confident that they haven't gone that far yet. The good news is, he is sure of better things. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, you may not be lazy listeners, there's that word, so that you may not be lazy listeners, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? Uh, the promises, the full promises that he wants to disclose to them that are available to them through the high priestly ministry of Jesus. He's confident they they haven't gone off the deep end yet. Uh, And the reason he's confident is he has seen fruit of salvation in their life. He says, God has seen your works and your love for the saints. God has seen visible witness of fruit in your lives. And so he's confident that God's going to give them permission to move forward, to grasp and understand what he has for them in Jesus. Uh, so he says his goal for them, his desire, his heart for them is that they would, they would press forward into maturity, that they would persevere in their faith, uh, that they would that is, have full assurance of hope. That's faith to the very end, that they would not give up on faith that they would hang in there, that they would dig deeper uh, into the word and practice harder in the gym of faith. Um, So that's his message. Okay, that's that's what he's, that's what this passage is about. And then from here, he's going to start launching more into his explanation of Jesus as high priest. Um, So let's see if we can solve some of the dilemmas and problems in this passage real quickly. Um, to do this well would take about five Sundays. Um, I'm going to try to summarize briefly, uh, but, but cover the main points. Right? Um, the, the, the crux of it comes under this question. Is it impossible? And what does he mean when he says it is impossible to restore to salvation those who are Christians but have fallen away? What does that mean? Right? That's the heart of what this is about. Um, it is a warning. Uh, and it's clear that he doesn't believe they've crossed that line yet, but he sees that they're headed in this direction. So he's warning them. And the warning is quite serious. Uh, he uses very serious language. Um, he uses words like burning and not restored to repentance. Right? These are hard words. Um, so uh, to, to understand what he's meaning here, we need to look at, the, at what he's saying. We need to identify the meaning of three phrases. First, who is at risk of falling away? Secondly, what does it mean to fall away? And thirdly, what does he mean by impossible to restore to repentance? Right? Those are the three things. That if we can understand those, 
um, I think we'll understand the passage. So first off, who is at risk of falling away? Uh, is he talking here about believers who could fall away? Or is he talking about people who only look like believers but in fact are unsaved? And in the end, uh, their lack of faith and their lack of salvation will be demonstrated when they do fall away. Right? Um, as, I, as I alluded to already, uh, clearly he's writing to a group of people here who are genuine believers. And when he's talking about who's falling away here, I believe and, 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 and would argue that he's talking here about genuine believers. It is genuine believers who are at risk of falling away. Right? He's not writing this to a Christian church full of Christian people and saying, you know, those lost people over there are in danger of falling away. No, he's talking to them. He says, you're in danger of falling away. You are the ones who are immature. You are the ones who are on a path to bad things, right? He's talking here to Christians. Um, if all the discussion up to this point hasn't convinced you, that will right there. Um, he's been talking about people who, who were mature or who should be more mature but are immature, not people who are immature because they've never put their faith in Christ. But beyond that, notice how he describes them. If if that's unclear, in verse 5, notice what he says. He says, these are people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Um, Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is language of 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 a Christian An enlightened person is one who's had their heart and eyes open to the truths of salvation. And they've seen those things in such a way that they've received the heavenly gift. That's a great picture of what salvation is. Our eyes are open. We we see a new reality that I am a sinner. I'm doomed for God's wrath and judgment. But through Jesus on the cross, I get forgiveness and new life. Uh, Once you see that, you can't go back on that. All right. It's kind of like, you know, have you ever seen a really graphic, you know, you go by on the road and there's the, the not-so-living guy on the road who's just been in a motorbike accident and, and, you know, that just gets ingrained in your brain, right? And no matter how much you want to get rid of it, poof, it's always right there, right? That's kind of how this is. It gets etched into our soul and that enlightenment is burned into us. Nothing can take it away. And it's how we come to have the heavenly gift. Uh, and he says that... that that, that it's those who have tasted it. Now, in our, in our thinking, tasting might mean, you know, you get the little sample, like, like Costco or the grocery store, you know, the little spoonful. Not really the whole package. They just had a little taste of it. But that's not what that word means in Greek. Uh, in this, the, the writer of Hebrews uses this exact word to speak of Jesus' death. He says, Jesus tasted death for us. It doesn't mean he had a little lick of death. It means he experienced fully and completely everything that death encompassed that was directed toward us. Tasting means to be immersed fully into it. So he says these are people who who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have been fully immersed into the heavenly gift of salvation. And they share in the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible talk about unbelievers having any part or share of the Holy Spirit. Right? To, have, to be indwelt and be filled with the Holy Spirit is something that's only possible and available to believers. Right? So 
so he's talking here about Christians. Right? He's talking about real followers of Jesus who are at risk of falling away and not being restored to repentance. Um, there's a lot of other reasons why we could go on and on why, why this is true, but that's, uh, I don't have time for it. But clearly he's talking here about Christians. Right? Not people who kind of look like Christians or outwardly pretend to be Christians. He's talking about genuine believers. Second problem, what does it mean to fall away? Um, most people, and, and, and the, the obvious answer is this means apostasy. Not apostrophe, two different words, apostasy. Apostasy means a person who has um, turned completely away from God and abandoned the faith. Um, right? they, they've rejected everything about God in the Bible. Um, if the meaning is, is, is apostasy, if that's what it's talking about here, there are basically three options for what this passage can mean. One, as I said, it means you can lose your salvation. It means that the risk is for Christians, and if you fall away, you fall into apostasy, it is possible for you to deny your faith, turn away from God, and you will lose your salvation. Uh, as I said, another option would be that well, he's not actually talking about genuine believers, and since it's impossible for true believers to lose their salvation, since these people did lose their salvation, they must not have been Christians in the first place. Well, uh, besides being logically confusing, uh, it also doesn't account for what he's really saying in this verse. Um, thirdly, you could say that it's talking about those, it's, it's a threat to those who could lose their salvation, but, but really we can't because... It's impossible for a believer to apostatize. Well, really, the only option is the second one, that, um, that they discover there weren't true believers, but that doesn't line up with what he's saying here. Um, so, the, so is apostasy the only option? Can falling away only mean a person giving up on the faith and totally walking away from God? Well, actually, there's nothing in the passage that would indicate that's what he's talking about. Um, that's more of an assumption that we make. But it's not actually what the word means. In fact, uh, this word fall away, uh, if you do a thorough word study, both in the New Testament and all its uses in the Old Testament, and that's all its uses in classical Greek as well as all of its uses in Koine Greek, the word never means apostasy. Right? So why do we want to make it mean apostasy here? I don't know. I don't know. It never has the meaning of turning or rejecting, uh, turning away from God or rejecting a belief system. Um, so what does it mean? Uh, well, uh, it, it really has the idea of uh, falling into sin, right? Of, of not turning away or rejecting, but of becoming indifferent and lazy, of walking into sin because we're not diligent to practice doing right. Um, he's not talking here about them giving up on God. And they probably weren't thinking about giving up on God. The risk for them is that they would drift into a lifestyle of persistent sin and willful disobedience. Right? Falling away means falling into sin and rebellion. Um, 
Is this possible for Christians? Well, I can speak from experience. Yes, I can fall into sin and rebellion. Um, but it doesn't usually happen all at once. right? He's not talking about here about somebody who just dives off the deep end and, and plunges into complete sin and rebellion. Right? For most of us, it happens on a much more gradual, slow walk down this path. Right? And that's what he's painting a picture here of. Remember, his warning to them was not that they had gone up into deep sin and rebellion. His warning is that they were becoming lazy listeners. He said, that's where it starts. But if you're not careful, it will slowly lead down this path till you fall away from God with devastating consequences. It begins like this, um, with small things. Our devotions become stale and empty, right? Prayer becomes kind of meaningless, and reading the Word becomes trite and empty. Pretty soon we're too busy to spend time in the Word, and we have no motivation to pray or to get back into the Word because it just doesn't do anything for us, right? We become lazy towards the things of God. And our love for God begins to grow cold, and He seems more and more distant. All the time we feel a incredible pull by the things of the world. Sin is more tempting. We find ourselves failing to resist its pull. Ministry and service become a chore. The challenges of life and work and family and finances pile up on us. And we start to feel weary and worn out and exhausted. And we are looking for a way of escape. Have you ever been there? I remember, I forget the name of the movie, where Tom Hanks gets stranded on the, the island out in the middle of the ocean. Cast away. Thank you. I remember watching that movie and just lusting after that movie. It's like, why can't I be stranded on a desert island, right? For, like, like, that was my escape. I just could see that that would solve everything. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for an escape, a way out of all the stress and pressure and struggle. So we don't seek God. And we haven't been practicing discerning as well. We haven't really been tuned into His Word to find the power to deal with these struggles in our life. Instead, we're being led more and more by our own feelings and by our own flesh. So we get a job offer back in our home country. And we think, this is it. I can get out of this crazy country, of this crazy job, this crazy ministry of people who, they don't want to know Jesus anyway, Right? I can go back and get a real job and make real money and have a normal life like everybody else. And it seems like, yeah, that's, that's what I want, right? Um, escape the problems of our present life. Or maybe it comes in the form of a new relationship, a new love, right? This new person comes along who's attractive to me. And, and I'm attractive to them, and they're excited to be with me. And we think... Yeah, it's so easy to just walk away from family and, and my current spouse who, who I'm just so frustrated with, right? This will be an escape. This will make things so much easier and better. And we, we are so good at justifying these things to ourselves. We tell her things like, well, I never loved that person anyway, and they certainly never loved me, right? I'm sure, uh, you know, we just fight all the time, and the kids will be better off if we're not together, we're actually doing the world a favor by 
running off into this immoral affair, right? God certainly must be happy with me, right? You see, we haven't turned our back completely on Jesus. We haven't denied that salvation is in Christ alone. We haven't given up on faith. We're just opting for a less extreme and radical Christianity. We'll just be normal, everyday Christians. Uh, We'll be like everybody else. And after all, everybody makes mistakes, right? That's what grace is all about. You see, step by step, we have, we have fallen away from God. And we've walked into a, a lifestyle of willful disobedience and sin. That's what he's talking about. That's what it means, I think, to fall away. These people are not in risk of abandoning their faith. But they are at risk of of falling into a lifestyle of sin and compromising everything that Scripture teaches us we are to follow and obey. And he, he, he helps us understand the picture of what this looks like by this picture of a, of a field. He says they're like a field of good soil that, that drinks in lots of rain. And that field has two ways it can go. One, it can produce abundant fruit. Good things can be produced out of it. It can receive blessings and then it receives more blessings as it becomes fruitful. But he said, you are at risk instead of producing thorns and thistles. Uh, Not producing in your life the things that the gospel was intended to produce. And he says the danger of this is that you, you grow near to being cursed. It doesn't say you're cursed. You just get awfully close. Right? And in the end, he says, the only way to deal with this worthless, this worthless works is to burn it. And the assumption is made here, well, this must mean hell, right? Because every time fire is used in Scripture, it means hell, right? Well, actually, no. There are many judgments that are, uh, the Christians will fall under that are described as fire. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about our works coming under the fire of God's judgment, and if uh, you built with gold and, and precious stones, your work, the fruit of your life, will endure the fire. But if what you have produced through your life is straw, or in this case, thorns and thistles, it will what? It will be consumed by the fire, and there will be a great loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, First, Corinthians, First Corinthians 3 puts it this way. Work, uh, your work is burned up, He, that is, that person will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He doesn't say they're going to hell. They're not losing their salvation. But he's talking about a person who enters into heaven with everything that their life represented burned to ashes. And they have nothing to show for it. They are saved, but as through fire. I think that's what he's saying here. Um through that picture of the, um, uh, the field, right? So what does it mean that, that it's impossible to restore them to repentance? Um, I think it just means this, that God, it is possible to get to a point in our fallenness, in our walking away from God, that you can get to a point where it is impossible for you to be restored to a place of Right relationship with God that allows you to pursue maturity. Right? Not, you don't lose your salvation, but you doom yourself to be immature for all of this life and sadly on into eternity. 
Right? Its impacts and, and effects are not only for this life, but you lose all the rewards and blessings. You, you miss out on many of the promises that God has for you. You don't lose heaven. You don't lose forgiveness or God's grace. But you will not inherit all that salvation has. What we're going to learn about as he goes through the rest of uh, this, this passage on the high priestly gifts. He said, God may not allow it because if you cross that line, you disqualify yourself from receiving these deeper blessings and benefits. Um, your life will only ever produce thorns and thistles. And when you, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it will burn. And he will purge from your life the worthless works of your life. You will enter heaven, but as by fire. Um, and that's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. And sadly, so much of the church in the world today is headed down that path. Now, Chris, this is not to say that some of the people in the church are not true believers, right? Um, that's very possible. It's very possible that they will actually lose the false salvation that they didn't actually possess, right? That's a risk. And if our life is producing only thorns and thistles, the first question we ought to ask ourselves is, am I truly saved? Right? That is a risk. But that's not his warning here. His warning is to believers. It's to us. And so let me just apply it. Three more minutes and we'll be done. Apply it this way. Don't miss out on all that God has for you. Right? That's his point here. He says, he says, my friends, I want you to possess fully all of God's blessings and promises that I'm going to unpack for you. But you're going to miss out on it if you don't change where you are headed. He says, you are on a, a lazy path. And if you stay on that lazy path, you run the risk of falling away into um, sin that is in many ways uh, irreversible. It's not that God can't forgive those sins, but you so damage your life, you so mess up the path that you're on, that it's impossible for God to restore you. Uh, and he, he gives these, these, these difficult words that uh, you crucify again uh, Christ to your own harm. Uh, what, what a painful and, and horrible image. Right? That, that you make a mockery, in other words, of Jesus' death when you walk in persistent, willful sin. Right? You, you mock the very cross of Christ and you hold it up to shame and contempt. So, and it's true, and we know this, the world is constantly saying, I know Christians and their life is no different than mine. Why would I follow Jesus? Right? It destroys our witness and our testimony and it, it shames the name of Jesus. Right? Man, I do not want to stand before God on Judgment Day and that be my reward. God saying to me, why did you shame me? And why did you crucify again Jesus? Because you walked in persistent sin to your own harm. Right? Not only do we not get all the blessings that God has, but God will discipline us. And I've seen so many people walk down this path 
And they, they think they're avoiding trouble, but oh man, the trouble that they walk into by walking down this path of sin, right? Their life becomes a disaster. And there is nothing happy in them. Outwardly, they might look fine, but inwardly, there is uh, turmoil and agony in the discipline of God. Um, But instead, he says, my desire is that you press on to maturity, that you are earnest in this uh, walk with with Jesus. Um, And and we we, we are earnest in these ways. First, we're excited about the word. Right? We're not lazy listeners. We are attentive, tuned in, excited about the word. And not just what we know, but we want to go deeper and deeper. Like, what is it about the cross? What is it about Jesus and his blood that I have not learned yet? I want to know those things. I want the solid food of his word. Uh, I want to grow some teeth so I can chew on the deeper truths of scripture. And I don't want just it to be head knowledge, but I want to practice these things. I want to be developing my muscles for how I can take the truth of God's word and build it into my life so that I, I have the power to discern God's will, to know right from wrong, so that I'm always doing the right thing in every circumstance. And in the end, persevering in faith, no matter how difficult it gets, right? I am going to trust that God's got me. Right? Even in the face of death, I'm going to trust that God has got me. And I have this full assurance of hope that if I persist to the end, if I persevere in faith to the end, my life will bear fruit for his glory and there will be incredible rewards in heaven and on this earth. But there will be joy and fullness in my life here and now and rewards for all eternity. Right? I'm going to live not just with my eyes on now, but with my eyes on eternity. So stop being sluggish, he says. Stop being lazy about God's word. Be earnest. Be earnest in these things. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.